Thank you, guys. It's a lot of fun on Sunday evenings as we have the privilege to see what the Lord's doing in that context. So today is Palm Sunday, and uh, it's a day that we commemorate Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And there's interesting things that the passage of Scripture we're about to look at brings out related to that. But one of the things that I hope that we notice today is Christ's heart as he was going into Jerusalem, as he was looking at the people, as he was thinking about the things that they were focused on, but also knowing what they really need. And one of the things that Christ makes abundantly clear in the passage of Scripture that we're looking at today, and we'll see this in just a moment, is that he offers peace to those who trust in him. And so we're going to be asking the question today, would you like to know what can bring you peace? because that's one of the things that Christ addresses in Luke chapter 19. So if you take your Bibles, we're in Luke chapter 19 today. We'll start at verse 28, and I'm going to read down to verse 44, and uh, we'll take a look at this together. Luke 19, starting with verse 28, this is what it says. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem, When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where, on entering, you will find a colt, tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away, and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this portion of Scripture. Thank you for the privilege that it is for us to be able to gather together today on Palm Sunday and look at what your Scripture contains, what it teaches us, what you reveal to us through it. And Lord, obviously one of the things that you express as a concern that was on your heart as you, looked, as you just looked at the people of Jerusalem, as you contemplated their fate, 
is the nature of what brings lasting and real peace. So Lord, today we pray that you'd help us to wrestle with that thought, and we pray that we would recognize where that true and lasting peace is ultimately found. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be able to spend this time together today, and we commit ourselves to you now and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. When you're stressed or when you're worried or when you're anxious, how do you typically deal with those emotions? And I think all of us probably have a few go-to strategies when we feel anxious or when we feel stressed or when we feel overly uh, emotional. But when your mind is filled with worries, what do you try and think about instead? You know, what do you try and focus on or what do you daydream about? And I bring these questions up because I think our answers to those questions, if we answer them honestly, can help us actually identify what we deep down believe will actually bring us a sense of peace. This world is absolutely looking for peace. Our culture, our country is looking for peace. And it's kind of interesting when you look at the history of mankind, because ever since mankind severed our fellowship with our Creator, we've been attempting to find peace, we've been attempting to find some sort of comfort for, the, for our hearts that our hearts are longing for, through created things, instead of through our Creator. And this has been the struggle of humanity ever since our earliest days. We try and find peace through things that have been created instead of finding peace through the one who creates. And this struggle was, was very visible on the day of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. When we look at this portion of Scripture, as Christ is entering into the city of Jerusalem on that day, He was surrounded by all kinds of people. So people of different ages, people of different backgrounds, people of different social status. And some of the people that were surrounding him in that context genuinely trusted him. Others, I think, were looking to him to be the means by which they could acquire some of the worldly things that they actually trusted. And then still others that were in that crowd despised him, and they openly rebuked him, and they openly rejected him, and they openly and even covertly tried to work against him in his ministry. But I think if we look at that crowd and kind of imagine some of the people that were there and also look at some of the descriptions of the people that were there, I think that we can find somebody in that crowd who represents the state that our hearts are in right now. And I think that if we desire to understand this concept of what actually provides true and lasting peace, there's some valuable things that we can observe as we look at Luke chapter 19. And one of the things that I think is illustrated for us here by way of example is this. We need to start viewing everything entrusted to us as actually belonging to Jesus. Let me reread verse 28 down to verse 34 again. This is what it says in this portion. It says, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And, then they, and they said, the Lord has need of it. Let's pause there for just a second. 
Some of the most influential people in my life, I would say, fit into categories that you might not necessarily expect. Uh, years ago, I had the privilege to meet and uh, become good friends with two elderly sisters. They had never married. They never had children. Uh, they, were in, they were both retired, but they were both in very good health, uh, much healthier than a lot of people in, in their age bracket. And uh, during that particular uh, season of time, the Lord had blessed them with a nice and reliable car. And by observation, I started noticing some of the things that they would do with that car. They didn't, uh, you know, like when it snowed, they weren't making donuts in the church parking lot or anything like that, uh, like, like some of us do, right? Um, uh, but what they were doing, I, I, I noticed that they were, they were looking for ways to actually serve people with that car. And so I started finding out that just about all the older people in our congregation at the time were being taken to the doctor by these two older ladies, these two elderly ladies who would use their car for that purpose. Anytime someone had a doctor's appointment, they knew that they could just call them and they would take them. And then I found out that they were also helping those that needed a ride to get groceries to get groceries. And so they were driving people around for groceries and they were driving people around uh, you know, to their doctor's appointments, and basically anything that people needed a ride for, they would drive them around. And what they said, and, and effectively what they were doing was, they said, look, the Lord entrusted a good, reliable car to us. He's also blessed us with the time and the desire to, to serve others. And so we're going to use this vehicle to glorify Christ. We're going to use this vehicle to be a blessing to His people. And I bring that up because this passage of Scripture illustrates a principle that we would do well to examine. In this world, there are going to be many things that are entrusted to us. We may be blessed with knowledge. We may be blessed with time. We may be blessed with abilities or finances or special resources or special tools, whatever it may be. And in the context of what was taking place in the Scripture, we're told that Jesus sent two of His disciples to acquire and bring Him a colt. So they follow his directions, and I imagine it must have been a little bit curious to them to actually follow these directions that Jesus was giving them, because it very much looks like, up until they have a discussion with the owners of this colt, that they're about to steal something, or what, like, what are we about to do here? You know, are people going to think we're stealing this thing? What, what's actually happened, happening here? But they follow Jesus' directions, they find the colt right where Jesus tells them to find it, they untie the animal, and they told the owners that they were taking it because the Lord needed it. And from what we see in this pivotal passage of Scripture, that answer apparently was sufficient for the owners of the colt. It's like, all right, well, if the Lord needs it, the Lord needs it. So they give them the colt. And here in this particular context here, Jesus was able to utilize this colt to demonstrate something significant and to demonstrate something prophetic about his identity as eternal king. But he also, in his providence here, he chooses to allow the owners of this colt the unique privilege to partner with him on this mission. It was a unique privilege that they had to partner with Christ on this mission because they certainly could have said no, right? As the disciples come and start untying this colt and start bringing it with them, they could have said no. They could have chased the disciples away from their property, but they didn't do so. They were content to treat what the Lord had entrusted to them as something that ultimately belonged to Him anyway. 
when I look at a portion of Scripture like this, even as this sets up this, this uh, telling of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, I think that this is a, a helpful example to us. Even though we live many generations after this event, I found this, and I hope that this will stick in your mind because this is something that sticks in my mind, but I found this to be a true principle in life, that you can either worship what the Lord has blessed you with, or you can use what He blesses you with to worship Him. Meaning, if we're selfish with the blessings that the Lord blesses us with, we'll turn those blessings into harmful idols. But if we're generous with those blessings, what we're, ending, what we're actually doing is we're being uh, good stewards of what He's entrusted to us, and we're exhibiting genuine faith. Everything that the Lord entrusts to us, it doesn't actually belong to us. It actually belongs to Him. This was a concept that was widely embraced by the believers in the era of the early church. I want to show you a portion of Scripture from Acts chapter 4, verse 32 and following. It says this, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Isn't that fascinating when you look at that portion of Scripture and just imagine what life was like in the era of the early church as believers shared with one another, as they blessed one another uh, with, with, one, with, with all sorts of things that the Lord had blessed them with. I had the privilege the other night to see uh, the movie that just came out on Friday about the Apostle Paul. Paul, Apostle of Christ. Very, very good movie. I couldn't help but feel emotional in watching the movie. I had the chance to take my son with me to go see it, and uh, both of us very much enjoyed it. I don't typically give movie endorsements because there's a lot of movies that come out that I'm like, yeah, that's just dumb. Um, this one's not dumb. I thought, I was like, that was cool, and it was neat watching throughout it all the different scripture references that they wove into the conversations between the primary characters, which were the Apostle Paul and uh, also Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts that we just quoted from. But one of the things that they took a point to illustrate during the course of, of that movie was how believers would meet one another's needs during seasons of persecution and how they would bless one another with what the Lord had blessed them with. So if they had an abundance of something, they wouldn't just uh, you know, store it, they would share it and things of that nature. And it's this idea here that I think is being demonstrated as we learn to view everything entrusted to us as actually belonging to Jesus. And I wonder, and I just throw this out for consideration today, have you ever wondered if one of the reasons why you struggle to find peace in this world, if it might be because you're trying to hold on to something that doesn't ultimately belong to you? Meaning, can you identify anything in your life, whatever it may be, that if the Lord said to you, look, I am requesting that of you, that you would not say yes to the Lord? You know, if he said, I'm asking you to turn that back over to me, or I'm asking you to bless somebody else with what I've blessed you with. Is there anything in your life, or is there anything in my life that we would say, Lord, no, I can't answer yes to that question. And here in this context, you have Christ sending his disciples to the owners of this cult, and all they simply need to say is that the Lord needs that, and that apparently was sufficient for them. They, it, it, it seems that they viewed what they had 
through a stewardship lens, realizing that ultimately everything that they had is something that belongs to the Lord anyway. And when you go on in this scripture, it gives us an additional principle as we're talking about this idea of the peace that Christ supplies. And it illustrates for us the fact that we should not let a critical in spirit, a critical spirit inhibit our enthusiasm for praising Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 35. It says, And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pause there. This portion of Scripture is amazing on multiple levels, including the fact that right here what we just read includes a prophecy that was made by Zechariah, a prophet who lived 500 years earlier than the events taking place here in this passage. Uh, When you look at Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it tells us that salvation would come from, uh, uh, or that a king would come who would offer salvation. And he would come into Jerusalem riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Look what it says in Zechariah 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. But behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. And here, this group of people actually had the opportunity to witness this taking place right there in front of them. You know, this was a sign that was told as a form of confirmation so that those who had eyes to see and ears to hear would actually see and recognize the coming of the Messiah. And here you have Jesus Christ fulfilling this prophecy that Zechariah had given five centuries earlier as the Lord inspired him to write these things down and communicate these things. And Jesus rode that colt into the city. And as he did so, the people spread their cloaks, it tells us, on the road. Mark chapter 11, verse 8 also tells us that people spread leafy branches on the road, which is why we typically refer to this event as happening on Palm Sunday in references to palm branches being spread. In fact, this is what it says there. It says, And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And so we call this day typically Palm Sunday. Incidentally, I don't know uh, why uh, years and years ago people settled on calling it Palm Sunday because it actually seems like more people spread cloaks than branches. So I think just as easily we could call it Cloak Sunday. Uh, but at this point now, uh, I, I guess Palm Sunday is probably going to stick since we've been using it long enough. But basically, both of these things were placed down before Jesus. As he's coming into Jerusalem, as he's riding on this colt, people are taking off their cloaks. And by the way, you know, I just cleaned out my closet a few months ago, and I was amazed at how much clothing I had that I don't even use, that I just gave away and I didn't even care about, and it felt good to get rid of it. So I was like, oh, look, I could actually, I don't have to share this hanger with 
with several things, right? This hanger could just hang one thing. Oh, look, the bar isn't bending anymore. Oh, look, this sweatshirt I haven't worn literally since high school. I had a sweatshirt. For, I'm 41 years old. I had a sweatshirt from high school. It's too long, right? It's too long. I needed to give it away. <laughs> so we loaded that stuff up, gave it away. Other family members loaded up some clothes. We gave it away. We're used to having all sorts of extra clothing. You probably have something that you own that you bought with the intention to wear that you never even wore. You might have something that has tags on it. You might have something that, you know, it looked good in the store. You brought it home and you thought, oh, it doesn't look so good in reality. Maybe I'll shrink into this someday. I have a couple shirts I'm going to shrink into someday. Probably not. I'll probably just give them away. In the culture that this was taking place, most people had like a pair of clothing, like an outfit, a cloak, right? So think about that. If you only owned one cloak, and yet you're willing to put it down on the ground so that a colt can uh, stomp over it, do you ever go to a parade? What happens if, like, do you win like Palm Sunday bingo if the colt does its business on your coat? That happened to somebody. I guarantee it happened to somebody that was putting their cloak down that day. Do you ever think about that stuff when you're reading the Scriptures? It's like, ew, that'd be so gross. Somebody was the winner, right? Maybe several people won that day. <laughs> but the point being, this is the only one they had. And as an act of worship, you have people saying, right over it. You know, ride over my cloak. I cast it down before you ride over it. I think that's fascinating. But what this was was a sign of respect. It was actually a way people would acknowledge a king in that culture. People would take their cloaks and they would throw it down so that the king didn't even have to step on the ground. You know, we in our culture, it's like the idea of rolling out the red carpet, right? You roll out the red carpet, a dignitary, a dignitary comes off a plane or whatever. There's a carpet rolled out, so you don't have to walk on the, you know, on the, uh, you know, the, just the normal ground. You just walk on this beautiful carpet. And here in this context, they take off their cloaks, they throw it down. Basically, this was a visible and public acknowledgement that people were saying, "Here's the king," and verbally they said it too, but they're like. Here's the king. In fact, when you look, uh, there's an example of it in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, where it tells us in that context, it says, Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So you see this, this biblical precedent for recognizing a king and his authority elsewhere in Scripture. And here, as they're doing this, as they're taking their cloaks and putting them down before Jesus, what they're doing is they're saying, Here's the king. This is the king. He's right here. And the colt comes over their cloaks. And as Jesus rides into the city, his disciples call out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So you have this group of people praising Jesus openly. They're praising Jesus loudly. Clearly, they're ecstatic about the possibility of him setting up his earthly kingdom and bringing Israel even greater prominence than they once enjoyed uh, back during the days of the, the kingship of King David. They're looking for Jesus to uh, establish a kingdom that restores their prominence, that restores their sovereignty as a nation. They're thinking that this is all going to be great, and these people are, 
are, are praising Him loudly in this context. And instead of joining the disciples in praising Jesus, we're told of some other people that were in that crowd. We're told of some Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious elite of the day. They were one of the most prominent uh, religious groups in the day. And they didn't like what they were seeing at all. As they observed this taking place, it bothers them. And in fact, they sternly instruct Jesus to tell his disciples to be quiet. It's like, you've got to shut them up. You've got to make them be quiet. You, know, they, you, you need to rebuke them. You need, when they start praising you like this, you need to tell them to knock it off. And in their mind, as they're seeing this take place, they're viewing this as a form of blasphemy because they understand what the people really mean in their praises. They're saying, look, this is the Messiah. Here he is. And Jesus, who is Lord over all creation, looks at these religious leaders, and he replies to them in a very wise way, a very honest way, a very direct way. In fact, when you look throughout the, the New Testament, the people that Jesus was quite confrontational with, he shows a lot of mercy and compassion in the things that he says to many others, but when he comes to these religious leaders, in most contexts, maybe with the exception of, of one, uh, he was very confrontational with them. And his reply is, they're telling him, you need to make your disciples be quiet. Jesus says, look, if my disciples don't praise me, the very rocks of the ground will pipe up and they'll praise me. What he's saying here is that even though humanity tries to squelch knowledge of its creator, the creation still testifies to the one who created it. And if man, being made in the image of God, won't sing the praises of Jesus Christ, Jesus here is saying, look, the humble rocks that man thoughtlessly walks upon will joyfully accept the privilege to do so in our place. That's what he was saying. Now, he's using some hyperbole in his language here. But creation does testify to the greatness of our Creator. And here Jesus is saying, look, your critical spirit should not inhibit their ability to give me praise. Your critical spirit should not stop them from giving praise where praise is due. Just the other day I was edified when I was watching something. Of, of all things, it was a YouTube investment channel, right? Which sounds like ridiculously boring. And when my kids catch me watching some of this stuff, sometimes they shake their head and they're like, why would this appeal to anybody? I was watching this, this investment channel that I watch. I, I watch it, you know, most days of the week and uh, at least check and see if they posted any new videos. And so I was watching it, and I was edified by something that came across that the person that hosts it happened to say. He was actually, um, he's a man who believes in Christ, and he was reading some of the comments that people had made, some comments from some regular viewers, and he read one of the uh, comments that someone said, and this is what they said, I'll just quote it directly. He said, uh, the person said to him, hey, I looked at your profile, and there aren't too many people in this field who believe Jesus was our Lord and Savior. It's nice to get some diversification in this industry. And I thought it was interesting that he chose to read that, because a lot of times, particularly when things are done on the Internet and people can be anonymous, they also like to throw barbs. You know, they like to throw arrows. They like to, to zing people as much as they can. And I thought, all right, here's somebody that gives good investment advice who's also not afraid to testify to the fact that Jesus Christ is his Lord and Savior. You know, and I know, that just as there were people trying to dampen praise of Jesus on the day of his triumphal entry, 
There are still critics that try and do so in our day as well. But as we look at a portion of Scripture like this, I think one of the principles that we can uh, just adopt into our own life is this. Don't let a critical spirit dampen your enthusiasm for testifying to the greatness of Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. Do this in whatever sphere of life the Lord has placed you, regardless of your field, regardless of the smug attitudes of those who may look sideways at you or try and rob you of your joy. In this particular context, you have people openly and joyfully giving praise to Jesus Christ and testifying to His goodness. And you have others who are saying, hey, they need to stop. But Christ said, no, this isn't something I'm going to stop. In fact, this is the type of thing that ought to be encouraged. And you and I, in the context that we're in, should never let a critical spirit inhibit our enthusiasm for praising Christ. There's one other thing that Christ brings out in this passage of Scripture that I think is useful for us to notice. That's this. Let Jesus show you what He's trying to show you, even if it isn't what you were looking for. Look at what it says in verse 41. It says, When He drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Then the scripture goes on to say, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Every single one of us has something in life that we're passionate about. You know, a few years back, I actually met a man who was passionate about installing fences. And as he was talking about it, I thought, all right, this is probably the the most unique thing I've ever heard somebody express passion about. Installing fences is hard work. It's very difficult. He's like, I've just, he's like, I discovered years and years ago that I enjoyed doing it. I enjoyed facilitating it. I enjoy seeing a nice fence surround a house. Uh, he's like, it's something I, you know, I, he told me, he's like, I could have worked in this field or I could have worked in this field, but the more I worked in fence installation, the more excited about it I got. And I thought, wow, this guy really loves his job to the point that he actually started his own company and it's become a very successful company. And frequently, I look around and I see on different fences, even here in our area, his brand on it. And I'm like, yeah, he installed that fence. And he installed that fence. He installed the fence at my house. You know, I I look at him like, all right, he was extremely passionate about it and ended up building a successful fence installation company. Now, when we're passionate about things or when we're excited about things, We probably start talking about it a lot. If you're like me, you probably talk a lot about the things that you get excited about. But what can happen on the reverse side of that is that sometimes our passions can result in us losing sight of what is actually of greatest importance. We could develop somewhat of a tunnel vision that can end up actually missing what Christ has been trying to show us because what He's trying to show us might not be what we're actually wanting to see. And in this context here, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he looks out over the city and he observes the buildings and he sees the people and he sees the activity that's taking place there. And his response is to weep. The scripture tells us that Jesus in this context wept. It's not the only portion of scripture that tells us that Jesus wept, but it's one of them. And he's looking out over the city 
and he weeps as he's looking out over the city. His heart's grieved as he's, as he's, watch, as he's watching the, the, the very people that he created spending all their time and spending all their focus and spending all their mental and physical energy focused on things that they thought would bring them peace that actually have no power to bring them peace. So they're focused on their worldly ambitions. They're focusing on the con- like just consuming um, earthly things. And Jesus is looking at them and he weeps over this because he recognizes that he alone is the one who can give them the peace that their hearts are thirsting for. Now, I'll say this to us as well. You want peace, and I want peace. And here Jesus is looking out over this city, and he's seeing this group of people, and he's saying, if only you recognized where peace can ultimately be found. What he's saying is he's looking to them. Because they're just going about their activities, they're doing the things that they do. Some people are joining in the praise, some people are criticizing the praise, some people are just going about their normal activities, some people are just distant observers. All sorts of things he's thinking and seeing as he's, as he's riding into the city and looking at the people, but he weeps. He weeps over them. Because he knows that he's the only one who can bring them the peace that their hearts are thirsting for, and the same is true for us. It reminds me of what Jesus said in John 4. In verse 14 of John 4, he says, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. What Christ is saying is that he satisfies the thirst of our soul. He satisfies what our hearts are ultimately longing for. In the context of what he's seeing here as he's going into Jerusalem, their lives were being invested in things that had no eternal value. And so Jesus, as he's weeping over them and as he's addressing what's taking place there, he stated that all of these things that these people were ultimately investing their lives in that really had no capacity to bring them ultimate peace, it was all going to be taken away from them. He reveals that their enemies were one day going to surround the city and tear them to the ground, and not leave one stone resting upon another, because ultimately this group of people did not recognize the time of God's visitation to them. They, they rejected Christ as their king, because really what they wanted was a political savior. And less than 40 years after Jesus spoke these words, in the year 70 A.D., the Romans besieged the city, they destroyed Jerusalem. They, just, they destroyed the temple. They left no stone on top of another. They came in and besieged the whole thing, just as Christ had said was about to happen. Christ knows that, naturally speaking, we were not looking for Him. We weren't looking for Christ. We weren't reaching out to Him. Neither were the people that this Scripture references. Right? They weren't looking for Christ, ultimately. We were not looking for Christ. We weren't seeking Him. So He came to this earth to seek us. And He's still seeking us. And He's still trying to show us things that we weren't inclined to look for and we weren't inclined to value. Christ reveals to us when we look at His teaching that He offers us true peace. Not temporary or circumstantial peace like this world gives, but lasting peace that only comes through a relationship with Him. Christ offers us a real future, 
Not a future that's built on the flighty ambitions of worldly priorities, but a future in His kingdom that He's secured for us. You look at what Christ teaches, Scripture reveals to us that, that Jesus offers us life. We were dead in sin, Scripture tells us. We were stained with our own unrighteousness. We had no standing before our Creator, and we were condemned to an eternity apart from Him. Jesus took our sin upon Himself at the cross. He defeated death when He rose from the grave. And He offers us new life through faith in Him. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are cleansed of our sin. We're made a brand new creation in Christ. And He destines us to live forever with Him. So as we look at the things that took place in this passage, and as we finish up today, as we wrestle with the type of things that Jesus was bringing up here, I think it's important for us to ask the question, would we like to know what can bring us peace? Would we actually like to know what could bring us peace? Jesus makes it abundantly clear in this passage that the answer to that question is, without a doubt, Him and Him alone. Don't offer the affections of your heart to anything less than the one who created you. Trust in Christ. Walk with Christ. And you will find the peace that your heart desires and that you truly need. This is what Jesus was speaking of as He wept over Jerusalem. And this is the same thing that drives His heart now as He reaches out to you and to me. Compassion, knowing that we were wandering and looking for peace through things that could never satisfy the longing of our soul. Recognizing that only He is the one that can satisfy that thirst. And He offers Himself to us. We weren't looking for Him. We were looking for other things to satisfy that longing. And Jesus offers us Himself because He knows that He's the only one that could bring peace to our hearts that we crave. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your Word, and thank You for the privilege to be able to look at it today. Lord, we recognize when we look at a portion of Scripture like this that we're looking at something that speaks of people who are very much like us. Lord, even though they lived centuries ago, millennia ago, People are people. Lord, their desires and their ambitions were the same type of things that we desire and that we strive for. And Lord, so often we're convinced that we'll find peace through something less than you. We look around at the things that you've created and we think, maybe that'll give me peace, or maybe that will. We discover all those things ultimately leave us flat and disappointed. Lord Jesus, you offer us peace through a relationship with you. The peace of knowing that we are part of your kingdom, secure forever, deeply loved. The peace of knowing that that our sin is washed away from us, that we can stand before our Creator, rescued, redeemed, holy in your sight. Lord, none of these things are things that we deserved, and many of these things are not things that we even thought to look for. 
But Lord, this is what you offer to us. So Lord, you know our hearts, you know our minds, you know whether we're people that are just observing you from a distance or whether we're people who know you up close. But Lord, I pray for each and every one of us in this room today that there wouldn't be another day that goes by without us coming before you, expressing our trust in you, expressing our faith in you, inviting you into our lives, seeking the forgiveness of sin that you supply so that we could go throughout the course of the remainder of our earthly days with peace that passes all understanding, knowing how we truly are viewed in your eyes. We know that through faith in you, we're made holy, we're made righteous, we're invited into your family. And we're grateful, Lord, that you have supplied that for us. Lord, we know that many people we know and love completely reject you and probably find it irritating to hear others praise you or testify to their love for you, just as the Pharisees in the crowd that day were doing. But Lord, we pray that that would never dampen our enthusiasm to give you praise because we know, Lord, that you deserve praise. You created us and then you recreate us as we trust in you. So Lord, we pray that we would not hesitate to give you the praise that you deserve because you are the source of our life. You are the source of our peace. And we thank you for these reminders today on Palm Sunday as we look at your triumphal entry as your word reveals it to us. We commit ourselves to you now, Lord. We thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name.